I'm Tony McAleer, author of The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. And today on Curiosity Bites, we're going to cover The Cure for Hate. Uh, we're going to talk about hate and what it is. We're going to talk about compassion and the three components that make up radical compassion. And we're also going to talk about the things that you can do in order to change the world by inspiring others to a place of love and compassion. This episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by MagCast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Well, whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market and to be able to do it all at once? This is your way to go from being invisible to getting a meeting with absolutely anyone that you need. Find out more, you can simply go to magcast.co, that's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot co, C-O. Uh, where first-time publishers are creating thriving magazine businesses. That's magcast.co. All right. Welcome back. You're eavesdropping in on my conversation with Tony McAleer. Tony McAleer is the author of The Cure for Hate. He is a founding member of Life After Hate. And uh, Tony was sharing with us his original sort of introduction into uh, the neo-Nazi movement, and we talked about how he and I had met and how he ended up inside that movement. We're going to uh, explore that a little bit more, and we're also going to go into the transition out. So there's the, there's the what puts you in, what happens when you're in, and then what happens when you get out, if you can get out. So let, let's come back, Tone, uh, because one of the things I want to look at here that I think is important for people to understand we're, we're going to jump around a little bit but i want to have it come to uh, a little bit of a, a hook here for people who are who are maybe seeing somebody they love going down this road um so you know like i said earlier a relative or somebody they care about is seems to be going down this road is there anything they can do you know, is that as they're 15, 16, 13, 14, 20 year old uh, kid or nephew or whoever it is, is starting to look, you know, shave the head or maybe got a tattoo or put a poster on the wall and they can see the path they're on. Is there anything they can do? Well, I think because it's got to feel pretty hopeless for them, right? Right, right. And I, and I think we have to go back and, and think about from from a prevention Mm -hmm. um perspective and and i think as a as a parent and my kids 27 and 28 now um creating a, a safe space for your child where they can come to you and talk to you about anything without fear of judgment i think that's that's a key and if you if you can create that safe space and be curious about your child um you know if you if you create that safe space and you have that genuine curiosity and curious about how your child sees themselves, how they see the world, how they see themselves in the world, um, you'll be able to pick up when those things start to change. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I want to come to that because that's the prevention. That's before your kid gets there. But I'm right now, just because of some, I'm certain 
there's somebody watching, listening, who's going, Jesus, my kid is on that path and I hadn't realized. What can I do? Is there anything I can do now? And my kid is already distanced from me. They already haven't felt the things that you were talking about they need to feel. And they're already stepped onto that path. What can that parent, is there anything that parent can do? I think so. I think, um, I think um, certainly there's a, there's a role for family counseling. I think often the, you know, if a unhealthy family dynamic can often be a, a, a contributing factor. Uh, and I think again, being, being curious as to, you know, when, when we sit down with someone for the first time, it's how, how do you, how do you see the world? How do you believe that? Like, tell me what you, um, tell me what you're into. And, and it's that tension between, being curious and, and non-judgmental uh, and and holding your values at the same time, you know, never concede, never condemn. Um, just the act of listening is, is and allowing people to be vulnerable is an incredibly powerful um, experience. But I know as a parent, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, <laughs> to keep your mouth shut or to not be, not be judgmental in that, in that space. But I think you've got to get the communication, um, happening and, and just because you're listening to uh, a person's views doesn't mean you agree with them and, and you don't have to you you sort of you hold your your sense of your of your own values and and uh, get them get them talking talking I, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown and, and to paraphrase her is you know when we can allow someone to be vulnerable in, in that safe space um, you know shame is erased mm-hmm and and um and healing and stuff can can happen and um it, it it's but it's difficult it's difficult to to but i want to take this out of the idealistic because this implies that if i turn up with my kid and say you know what i really just want to understand that they're actually going to open up and if you've ever had teenage kids and i know you have <laughs> and i know i have um it's not usually the case i mean usually the that kid is already reactive and you say you know i really am curious and i want to listen to you and i want to understand and the the kid the kid tells you to go forth and multiply by yourself um so um getting them to open up is what i'm actually asking about how do you get them to i mean you can see the behavior you can see a tattoo, you can see a poster, you can see, hear, read something that's around that gives you those clues. How do you get your kid to open up? I mean, I'm sure you'll confront, I mean, you, you're now speaking around the world. You're speaking to organizations, you're speaking to police forces, um, and doing a lot of the prevention work. So this person is now sort of one foot in, right? This kid is now one foot in and their parents trying to get them to open up, but this kid's never opened up to them for, for probably very good reasons to the kid, but why would they open up now? How do we get I mean, them to open up now? You know, the Life After Hate is an organization that, that helps families through that type of, mm-hmm. uh, that type of um, crisis, and they have trained counselors. So, you know, you get into the family dynamic, it's... Um, as you know, it can be, <laughs> be quite, quite complicated. Um, 
I mean, you'd, I think it's, it comes down to, you know, when I think in my case, my relationship with my father never, never, um, never recovered from the, what I was into. And my mom couldn't stand what I was into, but she always kept the door open. She always kept a, a connection, a, a pathway back. And sometimes, um, you know, I wasn't ready at the time that she offered help. Uh, and I wasn't in a place where I could receive it, but she, she um, always kept that pathway back. And when the time was right, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's compassion with healthy boundaries and consequences. Yeah. And um, she loved me unconditionally, but her relationship with me was very conditional. Right. And, and when I, found myself a single father with, with two kids and needed her assistance. She leveraged, she leveraged that. And it was very, very conditional. And so she, that's, that's how she did it with me. But I also have to recognize that um, there's no magic bullet uh, to this. And it may take a couple of years before the, there's a crack, there's an opening um, that can, that can, open things up with, uh, with, with the child. I just, I just know that, uh, judging them and attacking, you know, their ideology and, and that type of thing. It doesn't mean you're accepted, but that, that right. makes things worse. What do you think is the, the major misconception of people who, who join the Aryan nation or become part of this, ideology this thinking you know uh, do you think that there is you know a media misconception of these people um and, and if there is what is it there's a couple i think you know one of them is that um people are irredeemable mm-hmm. that uh, you know once a nazi always a nazi yeah uh so to speak and we simply we know that's not we know that's not true. It, no, right. no one is irredeemable. Um, the other one is that the ideology is the primary driver for why people join. And mm. it's not, it's what comes with the ideology and it's acceptance, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of um, attention and approval and all, all of these different things that come with the ideology and the ideology becomes a pathway in order to get those basic human needs met. So it's not the ideology that draws people in. It's, it's those other things. And so when we want to deal with someone um, that's steeped in that world and, and up to their eyeballs in, in the, those types of movements, the, the ideology is not the, the key to getting them out. It's dealing with those unmet basic human, human needs. And we work around those areas. And, you know, if, if we can, help people create uh, a new identity in a healthy way. The, the, the ideology just crumbles. Like it's, it, yeah. it doesn't, you know, for, for me, that, that identity piece was a uh, single father. Yeah. You know, not that, that gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning it's, and acceptance and approval and, and all of those things in a very healthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the ideology just sort of, I think it's fascinating that, you know, we've been given these ideas of who these quote people are, 
and we think that that is the truth <clears throat> that that's who they are um and and as you said then we come at the ideology and we we miss the person um you know and we say things like how could you possibly believe that um well the actual the actual answer psychologically is i could believe that because these people give me attention give me affection give me uh, acceptance give me approval uh, give me community that's how i can believe it um you know because uh, as you know i studied cult psychology and I was fascinated with cult psychology because um, the the misconception was that, that the people involved in the cult were stupid. And then there were doctors and lawyers and people like that were in it. It's like, no, these are not stupid people, but there is a need being met. And clearly you were not a stupid person. I mean, you were a a top student, you were highly articulate and you know, you became the voice of the movement. You're, they, they leveraged your intellect and your, um, your ability to speak uh, into the movement. But again, it's easy to seem like it's about the ideology rather than about the basic human needs. And I think that that's one of the great misconcepts. On top of that is of course, the misconcept of class that uh, that you know the only people who get involved in this are people who are uh, lower working class or, or poverty people um, but you weren't that your dad was a psychiatrist when you look at the movement though was it was them was that the majority was there more of a sort of working class mentality or was it something else no, I think it, it was reflective of society at, at large. Obviously, there was a, a, a large component of it that was working class, but there was yeah. teachers and doctors and, and uh, you know, different people um, that, that joined up for, you know, for, for different reasons. And, you know, I, I remember one of my fondest memories uh, from childhood with my, with my dad is, is he had a, an MGB sports car and then you get the top down and we uh we'd go driving on the highway and and batman and robin you know the old adam west yeah batman yeah and i was uh that that was my favorite show so whenever we were in this little sports car I'd, it was the batmobile and and my dad was batman and i was robin the faithful the faithful sidekick um and that became the imprint for um, for a long period of my life for the my relationship with uh, with other men and and what happened in the in the movement is I could get attention acceptance approval from these father figures you know the endless series of father figures in my life I couldn't solve the problem with my own dad but uh, <laughs> I, but I knew I knew how to to get the formula right and get it from all these these other people. So I became almost like a, like an overachiever in the, in the right. doing, doing all of this stuff to get, get the, the fatherly attention that, that I so craved. And of course the, uh, the, 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 the thing I figured out later on about that Batman Robin relationship as a, as a model is it's inherently unequal. You of know? Course. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, 
and it wasn't until I was in a Batman position and someone else was in the Robin position that I, I understood how disempowering mm. it was. And it, it felt, you know, getting that fatherly attention felt really great, but I was giving up all my power at the same time. Right. And, you know, it wasn't until I figured that, you know, that out that, uh, you know, I could move, move beyond that into, into healthy, healthy male relationships. Mm -hmm. When you, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, media about these things, um, whether that's in, uh, the alt-right movement that we're seeing sort of blow up, um, that you and I spoke about yeah, before the elections in 2016, we spoke about it in New York. Um, but aside from that, there's also movies. Um, you know, we see uh, things like uh, American History X and Ryan Gosling and The Believer, um, both in my mind, uh, superbly done movies. How do you feel about those movies and about their portrayal? Because they are, I mean, these are redemption movies, obviously, but uh, how do you feel about those, that kind of portrayal? Do you, do you feel like it, it the, represents or is it something else? No, I think American History X, I think, is the most powerful one that, for me. And, and uh, I was in the process of leaving when that film came out. And so it played an instrumental role in, mm -hmm. in affirming the decisions I was making at the time. But, um, you know, if we look at, at what we were doing at, when I was at Life After Hate, a lot of it's, you know, similar and it's, that powerful experience of receiving compassion from someone who we don't feel we deserve it from someone from mm -hmm. a, uh, a community we had once dehumanized, you know, and that's, that was the, the gift you gave me in that introductory counseling session in your, in your office. And it's what Avery Brooks character, the, the African-American history teacher, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember there's a scene where Edward Norton's been raped by the, the Aryan prisoners and he's, he's in the infirmary and, and a, his teacher, the African-American comes to talk to him and ask him the question, you know, has anything you've ever done made your life better with this? And he breaks down uh, crying and Edward Norton's characters, you know, shaking his head. No. And, and um, I actually cried when I watched that for, and, and realized that I'd, been doing all of this stuff um but it really hadn't made my life the more i got into it the more i it, i was struggling you know with uh with everything so that and at the same time um avery brooks the character holds him accountable mm -hmm. right so it's not just a i'm going to give you compassion but there's healthy boundaries and consequences and he, you know, there's things that he has to do in order to, to get that, uh, that redemption. There's that, that accountability piece. And I think it, it's a, it's a great example of that compassion with healthy boundaries and consequences that, that we, we use at life after, uh, at life after hate. Um, but it's everything, um, for a, an intervention style program is in that film. The, I think there's a lot of motivators um, 
to why people are in and why people are out. I mean, you know, um, Ryan Gosling in the movie, The Believer, um, is actually a Jewish kid who joins the Aryan because he doesn't look like a Jewish kid. He's, he looks like a, you know, he's a blonde Aryan kid. Um, and it's the sense of powerlessness that pulls him in in the sense of having some power. And as you said, there are, rather than looking at the ideology, which is so easy for us to get caught up in, for any of us, to understand that there's an undercurrent, but we have to be curious to find that, which is what happened in American History X, which is what happens in The Believer. I mean, this is what, the only way for us to move forward is, I mean, that's the, the why I named and, and I'm actually, I don't know if you know this story, Tony, uh, of how I named this show. Do you know this story of how I named this show? No. Well, you and I were, uh, when we were at the UN and they asked us, you know, how do we bring people together who so strongly disagree with each other? How do we bring people together with such different prospects? How do we bring people together with different ideologies, you know, because as you know, there was me and you, and I'm trying to remember his name now, I've forgotten. Jesse. Jesse, thank you, from Al-Qaeda. And, you know, there's all of these very different individuals on platform together. And, and, and they were asking us, and, you know, we talked about compassion, of course, and we talked about love and better communication. And we talked about all these different things. And, and, and I felt, a little upset with myself because I felt like a lot of the answers we'd given were, were, every answer we gave was good, but I felt like we'd missed something and I couldn't quite pin it down and it bugged me. I mean, it bugged me for years and I couldn't work out what it was. And then one day I was signing off from my other show from Leadership and Loyalty and my sign off from the other show is, stay curious, my friend, stay curious. And I went, Shit, that's the answer. That's the answer. It's the willingness to be curious is what will actually. So you are catalytic um, to to the name of this show because I realized that it's the curiosity. It's not the uh, you can't have the compassion without the curiosity. You can, you know it's it's the it's not it's not the end, but it's the catalyst to everything we need. It is in curiosity. And I realized that I needed a greater level of curiosity, that we all need a greater level of curiosity into understanding why somebody is doing what they're doing rather than what it is they're doing. And we tend to look at the what, not the why, and that's uh, greatly disappointing. When you, when you were catalyzed out, I want to come to, to this piece now because it's, it's important. Because, you know, we met, you were physically already out of the group. Uh, you know, as you and I talk about that, um, you, uh, you were out of the ideology, but the ideology wasn't out of you yet. Um, talk to us about the, because I know the story, and I think it's a really important one, the catalyst to, to leaving uh, to to recognizing this is not my path because you said about Edward Norton's character and you know anything you've ever done made your life better. What, what, talk to us about the catalyst for you. Well, the catalyst was was my children. 
mm-hmm. and and my daughter, and it became <clears throat> increasingly obvious uh, the amount of you know the movement movement is full of drama. There's a lot of egos, and it's the last place you want to raise a <laughs> raise a daughter. It's so dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. I don't think um, I don't think there was any healthy relationships um, in that world, and and I don't think you know, everybody was in, in their, you know, they were, they were, we were all bound by our wounds. You know, that's, that's what sort of brought us together. And I wouldn't know a healthy relationship then if it came and kissed me on the lips. Right. Um, and then I'm, you know, raising and becoming a single dad. Um, and I'm starting to get the identity piece from that. And, and so I've, I sort of got these two identities, Mm-hmm. And the way that I rationalized it, um, you know, because at, at the height of, of the movement, I couldn't have been more out of integrity with little Tony. I couldn't have been more opposite to the true essence of who I came into the world to be. And the more I was out of integrity with little Tony, the more my life was full of dysfunction and, and struggle and, and all of that. And, and I was, you know, exhausted. And I said to myself, why should I, why should I fight? be like Don Quixote jousting windmills. Why should I fight for a bunch of white people who couldn't give a crap whether I lived or died? Mm-hmm. If I really want to do something for the white race, I'll make sure these two children thrive and survive. And that will be my contribution. That's how I made the pivot while keeping my identity intact. So I left the movement, but I'm still a white supremacist. Um, and now I'm going to do it in, in the service of, of raising the children. And once I started to put distance between the, the social network that I was involved with and, and the activity and all of that, the, the, the psychic bonds started to fray and, and weaken. Mm-hmm. But I was still, you know, and we call that in disengagement, you know, mm-hmm. and, but I still, you know, I was still an asshole. Right. I was still mean to people and uh, hu- I would humiliate them verbally and all the stuff that I was doing when I was in the movement, but it just wasn't ideologically based. I still had um, the anger and, and, and all of that stuff. So I, it was about seven years from the time that I left to the time that I first started to, to work with, work with you. And, uh, you know, I was in, in abusing alcohol and, and God knows what else, and and so that that uh, that that got me to the place with with you, where I was still had all of that all of the baggage, mm-hmm. um, but I, I just wasn't involved in in harnessing it towards that that nefarious nefarious end. And the next stage, and, and you know what it began with you was and I hate these technical academic terms, but de-radicalization. Yeah. Right. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't a process, you know, and, and we, we did this de-radical. I, I didn't know what de-radicalization was. I didn't know that there was groups that even did that, you know, did that. We, we just, yeah. you were a good counselor and that's, you know. Well, we, when they asked us at the UN, how did you de-radicalize? And I, and I said, Tony, did I ever use the word de-radicalize? And you went, no. He said, what language did you use? And we said, Monty Python. We both said it exactly at the same time. The de-radicalization language we used was Monty Python. And they said, and the people were like, they thought it was funny. And they like, what do you mean? And we go, it was rapport. 
It was finding connection that was beyond, because as you've said here today, it wasn't about an ideology. It's about a bond. So find another place to bond. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. Yeah. And, and as, as I did the, the journey to reconnect with, with little Tony then and started to do that deep healing work and, and have that cure being curious about myself um, got me to the point where all of those negativities started to, to fall away. And, and the more I came back in alignment and integrity with little Tony, the more my life started to take off and it wasn't struggle anymore. And, 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 um, instead of trying to swim upstream, it was more like riding an inner tube in the <laughs> downstream. It was mm -hmm. life became very, very different. And, and as I went on that journey, it's and peeled back each layer of the onion to see what was next. The, my life started to improve in, in, all these different and wonderful, wonderful ways. And so it became, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I, I wanted, what's the next layer? Right. You know, it was pull back a layer, integrate the change, observe it, and then move on to the next layer, rinse, repeat, and constantly uncovering um, who I was. So, so <laughs> let, let, let's go to something here that you've brought up a couple of times. Um, and, and of course, it's very familiar to you and I, it's familiar language, but somebody watching, listening to us might be going, what is he talking about? Little Tony. Tell us what you mean by that, because I think that there are probably people go not quite twigging what we're talking about here. So explain that. Sure. So uh, if I go back and think about who little Tony, who I was at the age of three or four, and I was this bright, curious, stubborn, mischievous, defiant, sensitive um, little guy that's, you know, nobody comes into the world as a neo-Nazi. Um, you know, we come in with this wonder and openness and curiosity about the world and then life happens and we learn it's not necessarily safe to be sensitive or safe to be curious or safe. And so we put on, I put on um, armor and masks and project myself to be something I'm not in order to, to, to feel safe. But that core essence of, of who we are um, is always there. We may be, it may be covered under, you know, blankets and layers and, and we may forget who that core essence of us really is. Uh, but once we go on the journey to rediscover who we are re and reconnect to that, that, that core essence um, the more a human being does that, um, the more wondrous the, the journey becomes. So it's the, the, the inner child, the, 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 the core essence of, of who I was when I came into the world. Right. And I think that's really important for us all to get that, uh, we put on the mask, we put on the bravado in order to cope and survive in the world. But that's not who we were born to be. And the journey is to get back to that. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a moment here and then we're going to come right back. Mm -hmm.